Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk executive producer Rob Perra. Danny will be conducting interviews here every day, talking with experts on food and agriculture, and discussing topics like the impact of COVID-19 on the food system, unsung food heroes, how climate change continues to be a threat to agriculture, and other pressing social and environmental challenges that impact farmers, eaters, and the economy. Today on Food Talk, Danny interviews Mercaris CEO Kelly James and Victor Friedberg, founder of Foodshot Global. They discuss how Mercaris's report on COVID-19 could impact the livestock, grain, and crop markets in the agriculture market, and Foodshot's recent challenge, Precision Protein. Enjoy the show. Before I start and interview our awesome guest today, I want to talk a little bit about gratitude. For the last few days, I've been complaining about things uh, in, in the food and agriculture system that I'm hearing about that have, you know, either made me angry or made me sad. But um, what I want to just chat about a little bit is, is the food tank staff. We are a, a small and very scrappy lean team. There are only uh, three of us who are really full time. We have lots of volunteers and interns and, and fellows who work with us on a part time basis. They are young and brilliant and passionate and uh, bring me a lot of joy every day. Um, uh, we've been doing these incredible Zoom calls with them. And, you know, we're, we're trying to pep them up a little bit. And they were telling uh, me and my co-founder, Bernie, about their favorite books and, you know, what they're watching on Hulu. And they're, they're all, you know, they're not watching reality TV like I am a lot of the time. <laughs> they're, they're reading, you know, Love in the Time of Cholera. They're uh, watching documentaries. They're doing all this amazing stuff um, to, you know, learn. And, you know, these are kids who, um, sorry, young people who had to leave school early in some cases um, are our content manager who is graduating from graduate school next week is not going to have a formal ceremony. And it makes me sad for her, but she's so passionate about the work that she does that I am just, uh, it, it's really been what's keeping me going, talking to them every week and learning from them. They are are the you know way smarter than I am at that age. And, and I was just blown away by their, their ability to, to adapt to this. Um, and, and work from home and still be um, engaged and, and, and want to make change and, and want to be part of the food system that's really unpredictable right now. And so I just wanted to give them a, a, a shout out. And again, Elena Seeley joined us a few, uh, just really now a, a few weeks ago, about right before the, you know, uh, the lockdown. And she has been an incredible asset to Food Tank. So um, thank you, Elena. You are, are really a treasure for us. And I, I appreciate all of your hard work. Um, I'll, I'll stop there. Um, I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. Um, Kelly James is the founder and CEO of Mercaris, a company that provides accurate, up-to-date information on market conditions for organic and non-GMO commodities, and their trading platform connects buyers and sellers in the organic product industry to meet online and trade. Um, She has the most impressive and intimidating bio that I've read all week. She worked at the Chicago Climate Exchange, the first electronic trading platform and registry for spot spot futures and options on carbon, sulfur, clean energy, and other environmental derivatives. Uh, In 
2009, she was appointed by President Barack Obama as a White House fellow and was Crane's Chicago Business Magazine 40 Under 40 Rising Leader. Uh, she has all these am- other amazing accolades and things that she's done, and it would take me the whole uh, 25 or so minutes that we have to go through her whole bio. But I'm thrilled that she's here, honored that she made the time. Um, Kelly, I talked to Victor Friedberg this morning, and he wanted me to tell you hello. He was he did a great interview with us. So thank you so much. He is. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I so appreciate the chance to talk to you. Awesome. Um, so I, I want to start off with COVID-19, uh, obviously, and you issued a, a report recently about the, the virus's impact on, on agriculture. And I, you know, I, I want to hear from you, you know, sort of your biggest takeaways, and then maybe we can talk about what your biggest predictions are. Sure. Yeah, I mean, like everyone, I mean, it's amazing how fast life can change. The, there's not a sector out there that's untouched by this. And and food and agriculture is, is no exception. And of course, we've all come face to face with the reality that, uh, you know, if you don't get food food right, nothing else really matters. Um, so um, so first, just a little bit of a clarification. You know, Mercaris, um, we are, are, are sort of wheelhouse. Our sweet spot is watching the organic grain and oilseed markets as mm-hmm. well as uh, some of the animal protein markets. So I will preface all my comments by saying we... Um, well, we do, uh, you know, we realize fruits and vegetables, you know, tree crops, uh, permanent crops are in- impacted by this. It's not really our area of expertise to do deep analysis on those on those particular segments. So most of my comments will be targeted towards grain, oil seeds and, and some animal uh, agriculture. Absolutely. Comments. Um, and so um, a couple things we've noticed, some things when it comes to, to organic food and ag production, there are some things that are very unique to it when you compare it to the conventional food and ag sector, and yet we're all in this, you know, together, so to speak. And then, so there are some dynamics that are that are uh, similar to uh, the conventional food and ag supply chains. Mm-hmm. Um, so, some ways that it's unique, um, organic is you know where it's consumed. Um, we we for the most part, organic is consumed in the home. You know, you go to the grocery store, you buy your you know, your organic cereal or your organic right. eggs, um, and then you take them home and cook them and eat them. You're not eating organic most of the time at school um, or in, in, you know, chain restaurants, you know, large mm-hmm. restaurants. Some, some, there's some farm-to-table restaurants where you would, but most of it is, in fact, in-home versus institutional. Uh, so that's one big difference. I can go into others, but I wanted to stop there for just a second. No, and I mean, I think that's such an interesting point because then the what, what you're saying is that it's not that part of the industry, the organic industry, the grain and oil seed market and animal protein, they're not being affected as much. In fact, the demand is probably rising because people are cooking more at home. So, you know, the big story was you see all these pictures online uh, on Twitter and whatnot of farmers having to dump milk or um, having to euthanize hogs because right. they, they just, you know, the restaurant channels are not there anymore. Organic has had the opposite story. They have, there's been a spike in demand as people were driven back to the grocery store. And, um, and so in that case, we, we haven't had those types of disruptions. We've had other types and, and other things are starting to happen. So one place where we're similar to conventional is all these animals have to be processed somewhere. Right. And workers that process animals are, are working in close quarters. It's a it's a place where social distancing is hard to maintain. And so we've seen the first um, news of workers in organic poultry and, you know, processing uh, 
locations getting sick, which is causing right. either slowdown or disruption in, in processing. So, so yeah, that is very similar to what's happening with like Tyson and, and Purdue and, and others. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned that if we, if we don't get food right, we're not going to get anything right. And so can you sort of, can we unpack that a little bit more? I mean, this is a real opportunity in so many ways. It's such a tragedy for sure. There's, there's no doubt, but it's such an opportunity. And we've been talking to people for the last five and a half weeks, you know, experts like yourself who are saying, this is a moment that we have to sort of take on and, and, you know, really rethink what happens after COVID-19. Yeah, it's been interesting to me with, with social media and just, I don't know how you feel about your own life, but I feel like I spend time in different worlds. You know, you spend all this time in the ag world and then you realize you talk to maybe, at least for me, someone who grew up in not on a farm, not as, as mm-hmm. part of the farming community. I have all these friends and family that have no idea what goes on at a farm, at the farm level right. or at the infrastructure level. And I think what's interesting to me is I've seen the consumer, the average consumer, if there is such a thing, paying such close attention to the food supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, we've got stories about what farm workers are, are suffering and, and why they can't maintain right. social distancing, why they're so vulnerable to COVID. And it's not really, it's part of the conversation in a way I have not seen before. Um, and people understanding that it's more than just, well, I go to the grocery store and pick up something. There's a whole system behind that. And like any system that humans create, there are some big weaknesses there. And, and COVID is putting those weaknesses into stark relief. And so to me, it's an opportunity to think about, um, you know, equity from the grocery store worker who's making, you know, barely minimum wage to the, you know, the, the processor, you know, who's, who's responsible for, you know, an incredible amount of, of, of you know, it's, it's really, it's very skilled, dangerous, difficult work to process an animal um, to, you know, farm workers who are out there in the fields. And um, I have even seen some interesting conversations. There's been a sort of vegetarian vegan movement that's, you know, sometimes very, it's very um, fraught with conflict with those that believe right. that animals should be part of agriculture. And a lot of times that's been framed as sort of an environment, an animal rights type issue. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm now seeing it as, you know, people choosing saying I'm going vegetarian because I don't, I don't want to be part of a system that exploits workers. I mean, the irony is workers are exploited you know, in the plant side thing too, uh, plant side things of things too, but, but they're looking at pictures and, and hearing news stories of workers getting sick en masse um, at big animal processing plants and saying, how, you know, how can I be part of that? I, I just, I, it's unconscionable. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of eye opening going on. What was, invi- you know, invisible before is now very visible because of shortages at grocery stores or people seeing these things on the news that they probably had never imagined before. Um, and for a lot of us, you know, we, you know, I've been to more slaughterhouses than I can count, to be honest. I've, I've seen processing plants and, you know, having that sort of made more widely known to other people is, is honestly very gratifying for me because people should know where their food comes from and they should know how workers are treated. Um, you, you know, you, you, you started to talk a little bit about how consumers behavior, how eaters behavior will change with, you know, more people sort of seeking out these, these vegan products and vegetarian products. And I talked to Victor Friedberg a little bit this, uh, uh, earlier th- today about that. And, uh, you know, there's been such an incredible rise in the, the demand for plant-based uh, meats. And, you know, I, it, it's so interesting to me. Uh, Victor, you know, said it's a, lo- a lot of different things people are hoarding, you know, because they're concerned. But I also believe it's, you know, what, what you pointed out 
um, that people are like, oh, I don't want to be part of this system that exploits workers. What sort of concerns me, though, and, you know, I've been somebody who hasn't eaten meat since I was, you know, 13 years old, but I don't want animal farmers to be blamed unnecessarily for this. And Victor and I talked about that too. And I don't want this vegan versus animal agriculture debate to be keep going on because we've had, I think we've made so many big strides of how, you know, that these things are not mutually exclusive. So how, you know, from your perspective, because you're so interested in the organic animal agriculture sector, and it's so important for, for agriculture in general, especially regenerative practices that we're, we're all, you know, that build soils, we need that manure. How do we sort of reconcile all, all of those things? I mean, that is a, a great question. If we figure out the answer to that question on this uh, podcast, I think we should, you know, it, it, hopefully it could be applied to any number of places, right? Because we're in such a place in our country where we're just backed into corners and we're, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's such a tense moment. And there's almost no issue where you can't point to people being extremely, you know, it's just extremely fraught with conflict right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, I try to come from a place of, of, of strength and, and listening. And I, um, you know, like with the worker rights thing, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's conversation that processors have to be brought into. Um, you know, a lot of farmers don't have any say. I mean, they drop their animal, they sell their animals to the, the packers. And that's, right. you know, that's kind of the end of the story. That's where their influence, you know, begins and ends. Right. So, um, so I try to come to a place of it's not helpful to blame people. It's helpful to have a, you know, conversation. And there are, um, at the risk of sounding too much of a centrist, because I do believe that there are things that are evil in the world and should be called out. It's not just like all sides are, you know, deserve to be heard. There are times sure. when the answer is, is clear and, and there's a clear moral authority. But I do think that a lot of the thorniest problems in the world are a tangle of gray areas and no side has the perfect solution or it would have been solved already. And so um, coming at it from that point of view, I don't know, it, it, and it's hard to, you know, it's hard to take something that's your life's work, right? And then hear someone criticize it. It's not just, Absolutely. you know, it's very difficult. I try to, whenever I think I'm getting angry, I, I try to look at it as a reflection of what are the buttons that, you know, push, you know, my particular issues. It's very illuminative of my own, you know, thought process, even more than the person who I might be talking with. So and it's a kind of a, for me, a moment of self-reflection that doesn't point to a particular policy or action. It's more just a call of, you know, self-regulation for, for all of us. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That nuance really needs to be brought more into every conversation, whether we're talking about food and agriculture or national politics, not everything is, you know, black or white. There's so much gray, as you said. And, and I think bringing civility back into these conversations and having sort of a, a kinder, more reflective uh, attitude, as you also said, I, th I think is is something we need. I mean, one thing I think is important is the work that you're doing. It's it's one thing when the, when the moment of crisis comes, if there's no relationship and there's no trust there, how do you have hard conversations? Whereas if you've got a running dialogue and you, there's some, there's some um, social capital built with disparate communities, then when you have these problems, <laughs> you're, you're working from a place of, uh, if not complete trust, at least an established relationship where there's some respect. Yeah. I mean, we've worked really hard over the last seven years. I appreciate that so much to have these sort of non-biased, non-confrontational, but uncomfortable conversations. I think now is the time to really embrace the uncomfortableness of, of talking about these things. And, and, you know, challenge, feeling challenged and challenging ourselves to think really differently. Um, you know, when we're talking about 
animal agriculture, you know, I've heard from a lot of folks that, you know, who are, who are interested in, in local and regional food systems that we need to get back to more regional processing. And, you know, a lot of those facilities have just, you know, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, they don't exist because of consolidation in the meat industry. Can you talk a little bit? I know a lot of those folks in the organic movement have been pushing for that, but USDA uh, regulations often make it very difficult or expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm of the school of the improv school of of both and, Um, (laughs) you know, I think that there needs to be space in the ecosystem for um, the, the big, the medium, and the small. And I think the reason for that is because, first of all, your consumers are different. You know, we haven't figured out yet. I mean, what the current system does really well is get food cheap to the masses. Um, and that's really important for, some, some, for folks. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it feels like the wrong conversation to have to say, you know, well, food needs to be the you know, food needs, it's okay if food is more expensive because, you know, organic food, for example, by some means is measures is, is cheap. It's just accounting for the externalities that you don't see right. in conventional. You know, if you're, if you're screwing up your, you know, farm workers health because they're exposed to chemicals or there's, you know, runoff from uh, pesticides, mm-hmm. there's a cost there. It's just that you're not seeing it captured in the, in the price of the food. That's right. all well and good, except, you know, I don't know, I, I have people in my family that can't afford to pay a buck extra, you know, for, for the organic egg. They, they're going to, they need to push that cost off. Um, and the, the solution is like, well, their wage, why are their wages so low anyway? But the problem is that they, that is, that's a somewhat academic argument for someone who's, you know, staring at the grocery aisle and, and needs to feed their kids that night. Sure. And so for now, I think, you know, the big, the medium and the small need to coexist. Um, the big, can can learn some lessons. A long time ago, I read an article by Wired magazine called Big, Smart, and Green. And it was about mm-hmm. how big agriculture had to get greener and it could use some of the techniques used by, you know, small or medium-sized agriculture. Um, and I think that's really important for, so if there are regulations that are artificially giving power to just a few entities and, and, and encouraging consolidation, that's not good. Right. Um, you know, food safety is an issue. Small does not necessarily mean safe. Um, so some of those regulations were originally put in place to keep us all safe, but do they go too far? So smart regulation versus you know one size Absolutely. fits all regulation, I think is really important. Absolutely. I like that you mentioned um, bigger companies learning from smaller ones. We've had both Paul Willis from Nyman Ranch Pork Company on, on the, the podcast. And a few weeks ago, we had Jim Perdue of Purdue Farms uh, on the live cast. And, you know, I've talked to Jim many times about, you know, in 2015, just to give our viewers a sense of what happened, in 2015, Purdue acquired uh, Nyman Ranch Port Company, but not in the typical sense of acquiring a company. They acquired it to learn from the practices that Paul and the farmers that he works with had put in place. And it was such an interesting, you know, way to... to, you know, help help a smaller company because Purdue has a lot of resources that that Nyman didn't, and also to keep the integrity and the mission of Nyman in place. And you know, it's a uh, you know uh, Purdue gets criticized for a lot of things, uh, and Nyman got criticized for making that decision to be acquired. But I think it was such a it was brilliant looking at it, you know, five years later, because they've both learned so much from each other. And that's, you know, you talking about big, medium, and small, and there being a place for them all. I think that's like the perfect example of it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of good. I remember when um, Seth Goldman's when Honest Tea was acquired by Coca-Cola, right. and that I know he took a lot of flack for that, but he it also, I think his if I could channel Seth for a moment, he said you know the distribution capabilities of Coca-Cola are so enormous, and if I want Honest Tea to make more, you know, to be able to scale those good things, I, I need to be able to tap into that infrastructure expertise, you know, that type of thing. So absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know, you you were talking about um, the cost of organic and how when people are standing, you know, in front of the egg case at, at the grocery store, and if you know organic is is a dollar more, that's that's a big decision. That honestly, that's a big decision for me sometimes. You know, um, but I, I I guess what I'm trying to say is I was frankly surprised that organic sales have gone up so dramatically during COVID because everyone's in such a precarious kind of economic situation. You know, all of us, we don't know what's happening tomorrow. Right, right. Well, it's interesting. Um, we looked back, there's no analogy for what's happening right now, but we did look back at the numbers from 2008 when we had the financial crisis and the recession mm-hmm. and, you know, organic premiums in the grains, you know, went away. I mean, they they looked like conventional. It was this big shock to the system but one other thing we noticed, I was talking with our um, our head economist, Ryan Corey, you know, organic has grown up a lot in that 10 years. It's gotten more efficient, um, hopefully without giving up some of the benefits that, you know, the things that make it unique. And actually the premiums between organic and conventional as a whole have come down. It's It can mm-hmm. be very competitive. I mean, there still is at the grocery, you know, at the grocery store, when we see it at the grocery store, it's not just the cost of the underlying commodities and ingredients. It's a lot of that is packaging and marketing and, and that sort of thing. Um, but if you look at the price of the um, on the shelf, there is in some cases the premium has disappeared, you know, almost entirely. In other words, in other cases, a lot of times it's just come down. So the consumer is not maybe not getting quite as much of a price shock. It's also early days right now. Right. Um, not every you know the the impacts are going to continue to filter through. So we are concerned and watching about where they're. The consumer um, makes those choices. And the consumer may also not be, from their point of view, may not be spending, quote, more on food. If, if half of, you know, 50% of food was consumed in restaurants where it is more expensive, um, you could still be buying organic and still be spending less on your overall food bill. So that we right. think also might be impacting consumer that's, choices. That's a great point. I, I want to turn now um, to, you know, the demand for, for animal feed, organic animal feed versus food for, for people. Um, and I know that's something that you're, you're watching very closely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, so one thing in the grains that is again, common with conventional is, um, the grain markets, corn in particular, corn and soybeans is still, the demand is still largely driven by animal feed. Uh, you know, humans just don't eat a lot of, you know, dent corn, <laughs> right. uh, whether it's organic or conventional, but organic right. is even more impacted by animal feed because you know, let's go back to our, our friend corn as an example. You know, in the U.S., almost forty, about forty percent of the conventional corn crop goes to energy. It goes to ethanol. Right. We don't have that in organic. No organic corn is going to you know power your cars. <laughs> and so, from that respect, you know, organic is even more impacted by the demand from animal feed than conventional is. Conventional has energy and animal feed, and then a little bit of use of for human consumption. Organic pretty much just has animal feed and then a little bit for, for human consumption. So we think that, um, that animal protein, whether it's going to, you know, egg producers, you know, poultry, dairy, or, or, you know, beef and hogs, that's the, the thing to watch. Uh, the okay. lynch 
for demand for or, organic grains, uh, corn and soybeans. It's a little different story when you talk to talk about wheat or some of the other small grains, but for corn and soybeans, that's the that's the thing to watch is animal animal production. Okay, you know, after uh, doing the report you did on the uh, impacts of the potential impacts of COVID nineteen on agriculture, what kind of concerns you the most right now? Is there one particular thing, or is it just the whole set of things? Yeah, well. <laughs> I, you know, the, the big thing is, uh, I was talking to someone who said they're kind of dividing the impacts into two phases. One is this immediate fallout from social distancing and the uncertainty that comes along with not knowing everything there is to know about the, the virus itself. And then, then there's the longer term sort of, I will call it self-inflicted wounds. You know, how fast does the economy come, come back? When, you know, when, how long does it take us to, to, to um, sort of achieve the, the conquer the virus, you know, whether it's through vaccines, which take a while, or through testing and tracing, which is taking way longer than we had hoped. For sure. So, you know, this th- th- that type of longer term impact where it's, you know, there was the initial contraction, all 20 million Americans filing for unemployment in the space of, you know, three and a half weeks. And then there's the longer fallout as more and more people start losing their jobs and some of this becomes entrenched. What, you know, what then? So I think it's right. the unknown that that is the thing that's most worrying. And unfortunately, it's the thing I have the least data on. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> um, I need a crystal ball um, and I just I just don't have one. Yeah, we all need one right now. And I think what's very concerning is if, you know, let's say things go better than we all expect and we're able to, you know, get back to work, you know, by the fall or, or early winter. And then there's that second phase of COVID-19, which experts are predicting. And then I was reading today that this is really a two-year sort of cycle we should be looking at. And, and it's, yeah, it's all very concerning. It's concerning for farmers. It's concerning for eaters. That's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, we've been talking to so many people who have, have embraced technology in different ways uh, than they might have, you know, pre-COVID. You you have farmers markets that are going online or doing different things. Do you anticipate the organic sector embracing different kinds of technologies because of COVID? Oh, that is a, a great question. Um, I think, you know, I, I do think the uh, application of technology to organic is an underserved opportunity overall. And part of that is, you know, when you're talking about technology investments, it doesn't, uh, organic doesn't attract the type of capital investment, whether it's from, you know, the venture sector or whether it's from, you know, banks um, or insurance companies designing products for, you know, organic um, agronomists. It's just smaller. And so it attracts a little less attention, less investment. So, um, so it's a huge opportunity but because that opportunity is is still kind of an unmet need, um, I think you know you won't necessarily see some of the, the fancy technology that is being deployed in conventional to organic. It's got to be adapted. It's got to be so much of the technology in conventional, for example, and they let's talk about the ag production side as you know this precision technology. How do you right. apply chemicals better? How do you track that sort of thing? Well, it just it, it just doesn't translate exactly to organic since we don't use chemical inputs and we use other types of inputs, but mm-hmm. um, those often not optimized for those precision ag technologies that you see deployed um, in ag. And then, um, I mean, that's, I think I won't go into too many, but that's one example of how there's opportunity for uh, someone to get in and and create those types of systems. Um, But organic farmers, I mean, when the technology is there and and is relevant to them, they've shown an appetite to embrace it. So 
Um, and the same thing on the, I guess, on the other side of the of the platform, I've seen you know blockchain adapted for try to you know they try to adapt it for organic and 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 identity preservation, not just organic. I mean, IP, the supply chain has some unique needs. I mean, how do you segregate? How do you track? How do you value all the way through the system? And and those types of tech, those types of problems, I think, are tailor made for technology based solutions. So absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I we talk about this a lot at Food Tank. This idea of combining high and low tech, and I think the organic sector there's no there's no place where that probably works better. You you know you you mentioned blockchain, and I think you know right now and definitely post COVID, traceability and transparency in the food system are going to be really important for consumers. And so the the more that those sorts of things are are employed, I mean, I feel like organic already has a lot of that already in place you know, they're doing it better than some of the, the conventional parts of the industry. Um, yeah, we've had to. So, you know, there, yeah. again, there's another lesson learned that could be applied potentially to the conventional is when you've got to keep things segregated and track them, um, what types of, of uh, best practices, whether, like you said, whether they're low tech or high tech could be applied um, if that's your need, if traceability is your need on the conventional side. Absolutely. Um, before I ask our last question, I want to make sure that people know where to get the report that I mentioned and also how to get more information about you and the work that you do. Can you give your website? Absolutely. So anyone can go to mercaris.com and all you have to do is create a free account and then you can download the, the report COVID-19. We've also got some other free content there. And of course, um, if your needs, uh, if you need more, uh, more extensive analysis, we've got a range of, of data and, and analytics products that can help you really get a handle on the sector. And we'll have that website available on our social media and on foodtank.com. We'll also give the link to the report. Uh, we've written about Kelly many times, too, on Food Tank, so you can just Google her. But she was on our, our listicle of inspiring women in the ag tech sector not too long ago. So you continued. A long time ago when Mercaris was more idea, more concept than reality, <laughs> I remember, you know, having a conversation, reaching out and, and um, getting getting to tap into a very supportive community was, was key. So oh, I'm so glad. Oh, my gosh. No, it's my pleasure. Um, so my last question for you is who, who is inspiring you the most right now? This is such a crazy sort of scary time for all of us. And I'm in, constantly inspired by lots of people. So I wonder who, who's inspiring you. I, there's so many, so many people that inspire me. I, um, this is going to sound in some ways trite, but, um, I, one reason I think there's not, sometimes you don't see as many, um, women entrepreneurs or women of color, black women entrepreneurs is that a lot of times we provide support for others and we don't get the, you know, we are the, we are the support system for lots of people. I am very fortunate, privileged to have, um, a family that supports me and, um, and my husband has been, um, Part of the a big part of the reason that I have embarked on this journey, he is absolutely, um, you know, handles pressure with grace, and um, and I feel very uh, thankful. He's 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 my inspiration, um, and and he's also my biggest supporter. So that's so great. That's such a great note to end on, and really that makes me want to cry a little bit. That's really sweet. Um, thanks so much, Kelly. It was great to see you. Um, a reminder that this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. And please join me back here um, at 1 p.m. Eastern time on Monday when I'll be talking to Chef Amy Sins from New Orleans. Thank you so much, Kelly. Please stay well. Thank you. You too.
Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Before I introduce our really awesome guest, I, I want to confess something to everyone. I really want to get on a plane. I'm going to go to the airport. I want to wait for a flight. I want to get frustrated when my flight's delayed. I want to go somewhere. Uh, before March 13th, I was on a plane nearly every week, uh, traveling to places exotic and not so exotic. And you know whether it was to speak at a conference or moderate a panel or talk to farmers or food tech experts or judge a food and agriculture competition, I traveled about 200,000 miles uh, last year on just one airline. And I, I'm not sure how many other, you know, how many more miles on other airlines. And even though I know my carbon footprint has a, a really special place in hell, and we try to offset as much as possible, and I don't own a car and I don't eat meat, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the silver linings from this. My carbon footprint is is going down, but I, I still miss traveling, and I I really miss seeing people in person who inspire me. I miss standing in fields with a farmer while she tells me about what she's growing or the challenges she's facing. I miss being put on spot on stage. I miss putting people on the spot on stage. <laughs> I miss being in the same room uh, with people who are much, much smarter than me uh, and you know the things that they're doing to, to solve some of our most pressing food and agriculture and, and environmental challenges. So I, I kind of miss it all. Um, but that's why I'm so grateful for these Food Talk Live uh, casts that we're doing. They're really kind of selfish. And uh, I think uh, we dreamed them up so that I wouldn't go crazy during this time. Uh, we you definitely want to keep it, uh, highlighting and, and um, putting a spotlight on innovative people doing amazing things in the food and agriculture world during COVID-19. Um, but, you know, it's also my fix. It, it's what's keeping me, again, really sane. It's a, it's a way to interact with a world that I missed and that, you know, I hope never goes back to the way it was. I, I hope this is really sort of a watershed moment that there is a new normal uh, that is going to be better for, for all of us. I, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, we, we figure out during this time where we're not traveling, where we're more sort of um, reflective, that we figure out ways to produce more nutritious food. Um, that, that food workers are, are guaranteed, you know, uh, not just better wages, but healthier lives, that they're respected, that farmers are honored and get the resources that they need to do their jobs better, um, that, we, that we grow food using regenerative practices, and, and that we have a food system that's really based on joy and equity and accessibility and, and affordability and tastiness and a, a real food system, a, a real sustainable food system, one that you know, uh, really works for, for everyone. So I'll stop ranting for now. I, I want to thank everyone for indulging me, but these are just some of the things that go through my mind when I can't sleep at night. Um, and, and our guest today is somebody I could always count on uh, to see at least once a year, if not more. Uh, we would have been in Italy this month uh, at the Seeds and Chips uh, Global Innovation Forum. Um, Victor Friedberg is the, the founder and chairman of Food Shock Global which aims to use technology and connect people and ideas while advancing the global food system. He is also the co-founder of S2G Ventures, and he is a thought leader on food and agriculture issues uh, around the globe. He's also one of those people who's much smarter than me that I used to get to talk to a lot more. And uh, he's a serial entrepreneur, a serial social entrepreneur, 
uh, and, and a VC and someone who's really, really changing the world and who I respect and admire a lot. Um, I also have to say he's been posting. I'm so jealous because he's been posting on his uh, uh, social media feeds the, the the amazing meals he's cooking every day. It's it's real food porn, and it it, dr- it drives me a little bit crazy. It makes me hungry. I have to sort of hide him so that I don't <laughs> get jealous. Um, so Victor, I'm I'm glad you could stop you know uh, cooking and probably eating and join me today. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Well, always a pleasure to join you. And I I share, um, you know, the missing of seeing you around the world. That's generally how we've always, we both live in New York, but we see ourselves more in different cities uh, around the world. And I just want to thank you in this time for, you know, keeping this community, you know, together and uh, uh, keeping us uh, collectively sane uh, as well. And, you know, uh, connected to the people that we're inspired, you know, um, I, I saw your interview with uh, Dan Barber, and you know it was uh, great, uh, um, great to see him and hear how he's thinking about the world. So um, yeah, it's been a it's been a great series um, since you've last seen me. My hair has gotten quite a bit, you know, longer, and and Mine you <laughs> and uh, as you acknowledged with my cooking um, uh, obsession these days, uh, you know, my waistline's gotten a little bigger, but otherwise, I am the same. So good to see you. Good to see you too. So I I would, if you can, for you to give our our viewers and our listeners sort of an an overview of Food Shot and and what you're trying to do with this initiative. Sure. So, you know, I think, um, you know, I obviously came from uh, the investment uh, side. So um, co-founded SGG Ventures. The idea you know, in co-founding that fund was to think about investment into food and agriculture from a systems, you know, perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So how could you put a soil to shelf investment, you know, strategy uh, together? If the changes that we were, you know, envisioning, you know, around improvements on uh, the food system, you know, which has was doing a good job in regards to convenience and affordability and um, abundance, you know, in sure. the way we thought about at that time, all of these new attributes that were being valued um, around uh, health and wellness, around traceability, uh, around um, uh, functionality, um, around personalization, all of these new attributes uh, were really changing with the consumer and we're having ripple effects um, on uh, on the system. And so it seemed to me from an investment standpoint that you had to make those investments across the board because you couldn't just have, um, you know, momentum, uh, you know, brands driving the change. Those mm-hmm. brands had to get ingredients. Those, you know, ingredients need to be manufactured in a different way. Those, you know, um, agricultural practices had to change in order to mm-hmm. get um, the nutrient density that they might need in order for that brand to, you know, sort of succeed. So food was a system and that system was going to change, you know, radically. That was the thesis for um, S2G. Um, and certainly if you look at the S2G portfolio, you know, it represents, you know, that approach to uh, investment. Um, you have uh, uh, agricultural input uh, companies, biopesticides, you could have um uh, protein uh, ingredient companies. Mm-hmm. You could have CPG with 
uh, differentiated supply chains. You could have um, a restaurant and retail investments, and then everything that we understand is food tech and ag tech around food safety, food verification, uh, food waste, and the like. In the world of venture capital, um, it became clear to me that venture capital is an incredible tool um, for change. Um, and certainly, uh, uh, the portfolio S2G is doing amazing things with those companies. But venture capital is just one tool in the mm -hmm. toolkit, and it's one voice in mm -hmm. a broader um, choir, I guess, needed for um, systems change. Uh, so, Foodshot Global started as an idea of, you know, could we get a broader conversation going? bring more voices into that conversation mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, use investment as a tool to accelerate um, system change in, in, in food and agriculture. So um, could you create collaborative partnerships with um, universities, with foundations, with banks, with funds, with um, other nonprofit organizations like uh you know food tank to get a richer conversation going and then could we then think about what problems are we actually trying to solve and the rough and tumble of venture investing sometimes you can lose sight of that because you're focused Absolutely. on the deal or you're focused on the mechanics of you know investment and pipelines and diligence and legal reviews and um, so I thought it was interesting to put an organization together that could take a collaborative approach to food system change, multi-stakeholder, start with the problems first, use that group to help identify what are we trying to change, what are we trying to move the needle on. And then to deploy capital in an innovative you know, way. So it wasn't only going to be about venture capital. It was going to be around um, uh, grants and non-dilutive mm -hmm. you know, uh, capital. We could use debt instruments where that was a, a, applicable. But mostly it was, could we use this group of partners to really swing for the fences mm -hmm. and you know, go for more high-risk, high reward, high impact investments, and to use these financial instruments to um, sort of catalyze that change. So Foodshot got embodied uh, as an organization in those ideals around collaboration, around long horizon um, investment, around high impact, um, uh, high risk, high reward uh, investments. And so now we have 20 four partners um, uh, from uh, universities such as um, uh, University of California, the Innovation Institute for Food and Health at UC Davis, uh, Wageningen University uh, just joined in the Netherlands. Uh, we have banks like uh, Rabobank, um, foundations like the Builders Initiative and FAR and the uh, Rockefeller Foundation and funds, uh, you know, like Acre and um, Generation Investment Management. And so like a, a broad, you know, group of right. stakeholders. And so each year we look at um, one area we're trying to, um, to focus on and to create a framework around 
and to invest into. Um, so mm-hmm. the first year we um, uh, focused on soil. Um, and as you mentioned in your uh, intro, uh, this year we're focused on uh, protein. So exciting. And why the name Food Shot, Victor? I, I, you know, it, it holds a lot of significance. You know, I think it was more around, um, you know, this high risk, high reward, high impact idea, you know, and kind of more swinging for the fences in that, you know, um, in that moonshot or, you know, earth shot, um, you know, sensibility. And, uh, you know, it was a, you know, I like the sound of it. It was a good name. Um, the URL was available. <laughs> it always the most important thing. So. <laughs> no, it's great. It's inspiring. Um, you know, you mentioned this idea that, that, you know, we're not always solving for the problems that need to be solved, especially sort of in the venture capital world around food and, and technology in particular. And that's something that's sort of frustrated me for a while. And I'm wondering during... COVID-19 and post-COVID, if, if we'll, you know, if the folks who are investing in food and agriculture will be, really be trying to, you know, instead of just coming up with, you know, exciting new technologies, but will they be more focused on actually, you know, helping farmers, building soil health, doing this precision protein stuff that you're, you're, you think is so important? Or will we go back to the way things were? Where, you know, it's, it's it's about the technology and not the people who use the technology. I I, I guess I believe that um, you know the smart money at the table and the people who are real systems thinker and you know thought leadership of organizations like yourself and you know other was that it was never about the technology and it was never around. Um, you know, the investment, you know, itself, I think more and more over the last couple of years, you know, we were thinking systemically. I think the only thing that COVID, I think, identified is that we weren't thinking um, fast enough mm-hmm. and we weren't thinking deep enough. Um, and so I obviously believe this is a once in a generation, you know, um, opportunity mm-hmm. um, to uh, you know to redesign the food system. There were already movements towards that pre-COVID, but what COVID did was to really expose the fault lines um, of where you know not only was it breaking down um, on a day-to-day basis in terms of um, the food supply and you know supply chains and you know retail and distribution and things like that but i think the big lesson from uh, covid um, thus far is there were decades of breakdowns in the relationship of food to health and wellness mm-hmm. that got exposed in terms of the data, you know, in terms of um, not so much the infection rates. I think the, um, you know, I think COVID was, is pretty indiscriminate, um, you know, from a um, biological standpoint on, you know, uh, who is uh, on the front line, certainly what you do for a living, where you are in the country, that does your color, color, you know, the the disparity um, uh, in all of that. But I think from a 
biological standpoint, clearly, you know, higher rates of um, obesity, chronic disease, you know, heart disease, all of those things, you know, uh, created a greater risk of hospitalization and a higher, you know, rate of, um, you know, of mortality. And that comes from 50 years of a broken, you know, um, food system. And I think that data will prevail. And um, uh, I think it's already changed uh, consumers' view of their own responsibilities um, in terms of their own personal health, the responsibilities of food companies and employers, you know, in the health and wellness of their um, uh, of their um, employees and the role of food um, and uh, functional food, you know, in that. So I, I'm optimistic that we come out of this with, um, you know, much more precision around where the interventions need to, uh, you know, to be where investment needs to go. Um, and then to fix, you know, all of the day-to-day breakdowns that, you know, we saw in regards to manufacturing, you know, and frontline labor, you know, distribution and the role of the trucking system, you know, in, you know, in that, you know, um, uh, you know, able to get, you know, food that's grown, um, you know, on the farms, you know, to where it needs, you know, to be and, you know, all of the food waste that happened, you know, as a, you know, result of this in a relatively short time. So I think all of those are felt by stakeholders, but I also think consumers see it, you know, right. uh, as clear as day for the, for, for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you, you know, you described it well, this, this, pandemic has exposed so many sort of cracks in what was already breaking down and that, you know, our food system has never been about the, the, the amount of food that's produced, you know, that's not been the problem really ever. It's been about distribution, but you know, when I think about that point, yeah, we've always had enough quantity of food. It hasn't always been the right kinds of food. There haven't been, you know, nutrient dense foods. We're, we're good at filling people up. We're not good at making sure they're well-nourished. And I know that's, you know, you've talked about things like nutrient density and functionality. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, the foods of the future are, are you know, you, you are already investing in and helping create some of them. And, you know, I heard from um, a, a plant-based meat company this morning uh, in Barcelona that there's been a 200% jump in plant-based uh, meat sales, uh, including, you know, Beyond Meat, which I know you are heavily involved in you know, are, are people, why is that happening? Are, are, are people seeing that connection between sort of the meat system and, and their own health? Or why, why is such a, a jump in sales? Um, well, I think those trends were already, you know, um, starting, you know, clearly beyond meat was, you know, uh, you know, resonate, resonating, uh, you know, globally. Uh, I think, you know, when COVID hit, um, uh, I think a look into, um, your eating habits, um, you know, you were going to be quarantined for some time and now you were kind of responsible for a balanced, you know, sort of nutrition and, you know, keeping your families or yourself, you know, um, you know, healthy 
And so if you were curious about, you know, plant-based, you know, foods, um, you know, before you certainly now became, um, you know, uh, more interested in it. So I think they, you know, there was an uptick there. I also think part of it had a lot to do with hoarding. You know, and I don't want to underestimate, you know, that I think what the industry is trying to figure out now coming out of this, you know, kind of fog of war, um, you know, on COVID and our, you know, our food system is what sticks, you know, afterwards. And so after the hoarding is done and after more normalized um, cadences, um, you know, buying and, you know, baskets and diversity and the like, um, I think, um, you know, clearly, you know, when you have announcements from Tyson, you know, about the meat supply chain breaking down, that is going to get your attention. Um, and when you hear about, you know, um, uh, you know, meat companies on the processing, you know, side, you know, um, having issues in terms of frontline workers, you know, being infected and you're, you know, you're, you know, thinking about your meat supply and it's coming from factories and what's going on in those factories. And, you know, um, uh, I think that brought some concern and, you know, maybe that was translated into, um, you know, into the spikes for plant-based, um, you know, eating. But um, I was just uh, talking to Ethan uh, the other day, uh, Ethan Brown, the uh, CEO for, um, you know, Beyond Meat. And, you know, um, you know, part of the, not reminiscence, but, you know, in the early days um, of Beyond Meat. And so I led the investment um, for SDG into Beyond Meat in 2014. And, you know, this idea of a plant-based meat world, um, you know, even within the context of a flexitarian, you know, um, perspective, um, you know, seemed very distant, you know, um, you know, like it was a North star, but it certainly (laughs) wasn't, you know, an organizing principle. And, you know, he's certainly making the case um, that if that world was ever, you know, in a position to be more realized, you know, it's more realized, you know, today. I think there's some truth to that. Um, but I'm a firm believer and, you know, certainly for the work that we're doing on Food Shock Global um, on, you know, sort of the precision protein. And I want to get to that because it really yeah. does address, you know, um, your your question you know more directly is that you know there is a you know a role in meat production um that is uh, more um attuned to what customers are what consumers are going to want around uh, healthier access to protein um mm-hmm. coming from their uh, meat not all meat is the same you know there are uh, there are companies that are doing uh, work like um, a new food collective. You know Gina Sudigan's you know uh, startup uh, that's you know kind of uh, part of the Applegate uh, you know Hormel world. You know is really starting to think about regenerative uh, you know meat systemically and regionally. That's very interesting. Right. Um, so. Um, you know, I think there's a role for um, all of these protein sources um, in our food system, but I think we've also, 
tend to overemphasize protein as a equivalency for nutrition and equivalency right. for health. It's not. It's part yeah. of a broader nutritional profile that's essential for day-to-day health and wellness of um, humans and animals on the, on the planet. Um, and so, you know, our work in Food Shot Global around this framework, Precision Protein, is to take ourselves out of the plant versus animal debate um, and to recontextualize the conversation around affordable nutrition Mm -hmm. um, and nutrition that is efficacious and that has a deeper scientific understanding of the role of protein in our health. And protein is not just one thing. It's a set of amino acids. Those amino acids aren't just around building up, you know, um, muscle and skeletal, which I think most average consumers, you know, um, and the public thinks about, but it has an essential role in everything from how our DNA um, is formed um, to our um, uh, cardiovascular system around our immunity system. All of those systems have um, relationships with different amino acids that come through either um, essential uh, amino acids, the nine that generally come with, you know, meat, you know, dairy, Mm -hmm. um, and then other, you know, proteins, the non-essential ones that come from, you know, kind of the plant, uh, you know, world. All of those have a role. So what we tried to do from a a food shock global perspective, let's start thinking about nutrition first. Uh Proteins one of you know a number of macronutrients that are important for essential living and healthy living you know we'll you know get to lipids and we'll get to you know sort of carbohydrates um but protein is taking up the most resources um, on the planet it's having the greatest impact um, on human and animal health so let's start there right but let's really think about it from a uh, more precise perspective. How do we use the agricultural system and the meat production system and you know, our um, uh, fishery system and these novel proteins you know, that are coming from you know, uh, you know, uh, myco and from, um, uh, um, you know, clean, uh, um, you know, uh, lab grown meat, um, Mm -hmm. cellular, um, all of these play a role in how ultimately the world is going to meet its protein requirements going from 7 billion to 10 billion. And if we're stressed at 7 billion already, you know, imagine what it's going to be like, you know, um, at, uh, at 10 billion. So how do we bring nutrition to a growing population? How do we distribute that effectively? How do we democratize it? And then how do we get smarter around the nutritional profiles of those um, um, proteins and what they do efficaciously within the body. And the last thought I'll, you know, do on uh, um, on the precision part before uh, you you can uh, ask some more questions is that <laughs> we are we are not just one people. We're in different 
life stages. You know, so our protein needs as, you know, an infant are different than they are when we're, you know, a child, different than we are when a teenager, as an adult um, uh, and uh, elderly. Uh, Genders um, have Mm -hmm. different, you know, uh, you know, requirements. Your personal um, profile in terms of, you know, are you, um, you know, are you pregnant? Are you battling a chronic you know, disease, all of these things play into our protein needs. And we need to drill down in those in order to understand how we better grow protein, Mm -hmm. how we better farm, you know, protein, how we better process and produce it because we lose a lot of protein density in how we, you know, produce and process. A lot goes to waste, you know, mm-hmm. so how do we look at this entire system from science to um, uh, production to processing to personalization right. in an entirely new way? And that's sort of the framework for our precision protein um, portfolio. It's so exciting. I have some thoughts on that. But we, we have a, a question from a young uh, farmer in Grinnell, Iowa, Tommy Hexter. And he says, one of the biggest problems we have here is we have corn and soy, meat, soy elevators but no real food processors. We cannot build a resilient food system here without sustainable, cost-effective processing. What would an ideal vegetable slash meat processing facility in a small town look like? Scale, diversity of uh, foods produced, et cetera. An amazing question, and uh, thank the uh, listener for that. So prior to COVID, there was a belief within the investor community you know, that there was, you know, there were investments going in on the brand side, on the, you know, the technology side, on, you know, kind of the retail and distribution side. Mm -hmm. And there were, you know, uh, meaningful investments, you know, really starting to go into agriculture. Right. The missing piece was in the middle. Right. And that was all around, you know, uh, processing, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, co-manufacturing, all of the attributes of a healthy food system, you know, that were being innovated on those sort of two bookends, the agricultural side and the, um, and the brand side, were hitting the wall to a certain degree when it came to manufacturing. There wasn't enough capacity. Um, there weren't um, the, the sophistication of manufacturing um, really hadn't gained any mm-hmm. traction. You know, um, you know, it was a manufacturing system that it got invented 70 years ago right. and pretty much has stayed the same. So there was already the feeling that manufacturing and processing uh, had to go through a, um, a reinvention and a new golden age. Uh, And I think COVID has clearly highlighted that. And now there is talk around the investor community. How do you put together funds, um, you know, venture funds or debt funds or new, you know, blended capital funds that could address that? And I, I love that your listener talked about in a small town. Right. Because the one thing that's clear is that this is not going to work if these are highly centralized, large-scale 
systems. These need to be smaller, more agile, more resilient regional yeah. systems. And we think that that's a great opportunity for, um, you know, regions and towns in this country, you know, to be revitalized around right. food manufacturing. So I think this is, you know, heading into a good period for that. And yeah, let's yeah. see if the money follows, but I, I, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I love that you called it the golden age of processing. Tommy had another point about, you know, he lives in, in Iowa, which is obviously, you know, where Tyson and a lot of other uh, meat processors here, Purdue as well, and they're vertically integrated. There's not adequate processing for small scale pasture raised farmer owned beef. So the market is struggling. How do we open the door for farmers who want to raise meat in better ways than in animal confinement? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think it starts um, with the consumer. Uh, and I, I do think um, everything that's being asked now about, you know, where do things come from? How is it made? Um, and um, what is it doing for me is the driver for that change. And right. I think that's happening. Um, I think the educational piece around that has to be, um, you know, built up because, um, you know, whether it is regenerative, you know, meat production, what does that right. mean? You know, how do I understand that as a consumer? There's obviously a, um, a phase where, you know, that has to be uh, done. Um, and the, uh, the consumer for the you know, for the early part of any of these trends, you know, has to be willing to, you know, pay for that benefit um, while these systems scale. Um, and the way that a lot of the economics is starting to be thought about is, you know, could you, um, you know, uh, you know, reward through some upfront dollars, um, the transition uh, piece of this, um, and uh, be able to, you know, whether it was to regenerative practices, or, you know, organic, you know, could you front load some of the investment into there, but in exchange, you get these offtake agreements, where the farmer feels secure, that, you know, okay, I'm being helped on the front end, right on the investment side, right, I am giving up a little bit of upside, you know, in terms of an open market of what right. I can get, you know, um, for this per pound. But what I'm getting is long term security, and gives me ability to, you know, build up equity, you know, mm -hmm. in the farm, you know, be able to then access credit and, you know, do some of those things and expansion themselves. So I think those pieces have to, you know, come together. I see, you know, signs of that, um, like the work Gina is doing on New Food Collective, I think is a great mm -hmm. uh, example of that. She's doing something super innovative, you know, which is really to start to think about carbon credits you know, and a system for the trading of those carbon credits to help those farms, you know, um, you know, kind of absorb some of those transitional costs. So, you know, some of the ideas being floated around. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing, an another sort of opportunity we have to recognize that farmers are not just food producers, that they're stewards of the land who really deserve to be compensated 
for the ecosystem services they provide that really, really benefit us all, no matter where we are. Um, yeah. And then just a couple of things. There are sure. companies like, you know, Mercaris, you know, um, that's very Talking focused. to Kelly later today. There you go. So, you know, <laughs> you know the work that, um, you know, Kelly is doing, um, uh, S2G, uh, you know, led the Series A and has supported it all the way. You know, I had met Kelly way back in 2013, did that investment in 2014, you know, you know, grain elevators, you know, uh, you know, pricing intelligence, right. you know, all of those um, ability to do, um, you know, forward contracts on a, you know, on a site now, you know, potentially going into derivatives. I mean, those, you know, she's doing some incredibly innovative work. And then, um, you know, Grow Intelligence is doing, you know, incredible work and, you know, able to, you know, better align supply and demand mm -hmm. um, in protein, you know, so that you're producing the right, you know, proteins in the right place at the right time, given, you know, demand profiles and giving tools to producers to be able to, um, you know, to uh, plan how they, um, you know, go forward with their, uh, you know, their projections. Uh, that's another company that, you know, Sarah's work, uh, um, uh, maker at uh, Grow Intelligence, I think is really um, tremendous as well. That's great. Um, before I ask our last question, because I've kept you on for a very long time now, and I apologize, uh, I, I want to note that you, you said a couple of things that I think are really important to reiterate that, you know, this idea of not all meat is created equal, and we're not in an either or situation where it's all plant based meat, or all, you know, uh, real, real meat, I guess, animal based meat. And that the, you know, the end, the end product of, of that is that we want to have affordable nutrition for everyone. And we want to have, you know, systems in place that, like you said, are regenerative, that help build soils. And so, the, you know, this is not put farmers, I, I you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, I, you know, it, it, attuned to the fact that I don't want farmers to be blamed for anything. I, you know, farmers are doing their best right now, especially whether they're big companies you know, they're working with big companies or their, their family farms. And so, you know, this is not a, a, a way to pit, you know, uh, animal farmers, anim animal production uh, farmers versus the, the plant-based folks. This is a way to create opportunities for everyone that are good for people on the planet. Yeah. And I just say, you know, adding on to that, if the general public and policymakers and investors and everybody, you know, um, you know, who's living this COVID experience uh, every day does not have, you know, a, uh, you know, not only an appreciation, but a, you know, um, you know, a complete reverence, you know, for, um, you know, for farmers, for frontline food workers, they are, you know, the, the front line of this war. And every day, I mean, I was already dedicated to them, but I have to say, I have a whole new level um, of um, not only appreciation, you know, but admiration and affection, right. you know, for those people. So whatever system gets designed, you know, from this point on, you know, um, you know, those people um, need to be rewarded and, you know, more greatly appreciated. Um, and, you know, they've been the difference between um, K 
chaos and you know order you know in the last three years so i just want to do a shout out thank you to all of them well thank you victor i i my last question was going to be who inspires you the most but you just answered it and and i i think you know the the respect that we all now should have for farm and farmers and farm workers and and you know the truck drivers who are distributing food all over the country the people who stock store shelves people who are working as cashiers these are all people who are putting their life at risk every day for us and it's um if you know these are before this these were people who were not treated that well and I, if we if we don't treat them well after this i don't then shame I, on shame on us if right. we do not get this right coming out of this absolutely I, I agree. victor you're one of my favorite people i'm so glad you could be on today and as well. So good to see you again. And, you know, soon, you know, we'll be on a plane together uh, and Drinking enjoying food in, in <laughs> Italy. I can't wait. A reminder that this, uh, thank you, a reminder that this episode will also be on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nierenberg. And please join me back here at 5 p.m. Eastern time when I'll be talking to Kelly James, the founder and CEO of Macaris. Thanks, Victor. Stay well. Take care. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.